Welcome to the Bridge Church Podcast. Our purpose statement at Bridge Church is to reach people where they are and help them grow. We hope today's message inspires you towards growth, and we pray it's life-changing, and we hope to see you soon. We are glad that you are here uh, for week three of The Quarantine Life. Um, I'm Russell Berry, uh, the teaching pastor here at Bridge Church, and as of the last three weeks, also an online pastor. And what that means is we created this space, this opportunity for people to be able to reach out for prayer requests, uh, to reach out as we uh, continue to try to work through this circumstance together. And it's been an honor to be able to uh, speak to many of you, to pray with you, and to just go on this journey of what it looks like to, to kind of walk through life in a faithful way in this season. Some of the things that we've been able to hear and just kind of support people as, as folks have lost uh, people in their lives. Some of you have loved ones right now who are fighting for their lives. Some of you have lost jobs. And, uh, and this is where the Be The Bridge uh, financial assistance and, and, and campaign has really been an encouragement. Thank you for all those who have given to support that. I mean, those real dollars. I've talked to the people who have, are able to uh, pay rent or, or, or get groceries in light of that. And, uh, and so we praise God for that. But one of the things that's unique and kind of also interesting in this moment is that there are those heavy and weighty things. But for, but for some of us, the issues of COVID-19 and what we've struggled with hasn't been like that big. It's been something on a like smaller scale, like, you know, especially for my March babies, right? Like th- those birthday parties that were just all canceled, all those plans that just kind of just got blown up. I know what that's like. You know, and, I, you know, we have uh, someone in our own family, in our house, our daughter that struggled with that and just trying to think through. And the thing is, it can almost feel like like you feel guilty about feeling bad about something that's not on the massive scale. Right. Like, can, can I can I be honest right now for a second? Because I had this experience, too. Some of you know that uh, we you know, were part of this docu- documentary series in pursuit of Jesus that I traveled all over the world last year in 2019, interacting with people. And like right as we were launching like the marketing campaign and strategy for this documentary, this all happened like like y'all. I was supposed to be on the Today Show. Like I had the, like the, the date was locked up and then this happened and boom, gone. Now, one of the things like, so I, I mourn that, I grieve that, but then I also feel like, do I have the right to feel bad about that in light of the fact that it's not on the necessarily same scale as somebody else? And what I wanna encourage all of us, no matter where we are on that spectrum, it's okay to grieve. It's okay to struggle through those things. It's okay to be disappointed in all things big and small because God cares about all of those things. But the other thing that's been helpful this week for me to understand is how much perspective in history can help us get through. See, see, one of the challenges that we experience in uh, being in a place like New York City and in a place like America, and especially depending on what generation that you might be in, history might not be something that you've grown up to appreciate a whole lot. Like one of the uh, places that I was able to go uh, in a trip was we went to Sweden 
And in Sweden, I was literally meeting with people in buildings that were over a thousand years old. Like, <laughs> uh, like here, we, we don't have anything like that in, in, this, in the context of this country. Like, we think a hundred years old is ancient history. And so sometimes when we get the perspective of history, it can root us, it can ground us, it can give us perspective of the fact that this is not the first time that this has happened. Like there, and, and, and we can learn from the past. And so we're going to talk a little bit about history today to kind of get us through. Is that all right? Because we don't even have to go that far to see how we have dealt with this. In fact, you just go back 100 years. In 1918, there was something called the Spanish flu epidemic. Pandemic. And in fact, not only was it a pandemic, it is still considered probably the worst in the human history. In its scale. At one point, one-fourth of the human population uh, was contracted with this. And it took place in the middle of World War I. Now, you think it's crazy now. Imagine being in the middle of a pandemic while you're also in the middle of an international global war. Now, the other thing that's interesting is it was called the Spanish flu, not because it originated in Spain. It was called that because, you see, Spain was neutral during World War I. It was not on either side of the battle. And so, in contrast to all the other countries who were dumbing down and suppressing the numbers of deaths and sicknesses, Spain was being honest because they had no horse in the race. And as a result of that, people would open up the newspaper and see this, the deaths in Spain and go, wow, that, it must be really crazy over there. Not realizing it was just as crazy where they were. And so there's no scapegoating around this about nations or where people come from. It's, it's something that impacted everyone. But, but one of the things that historians particularly take note of is why is it that a, some, a pandemic that we consider the worst in human history, worse than the bubonic plague, worse than all those things, is something that just happened 100 years ago and we don't talk about it. And, 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 and what they've identified is there are several reasons for that. And one of them is that people were ashamed of how they acted during the pandemic. You see, right after that, even if you, you know, you historians and buffs out there, you probably recognize that if, if, if the thing went from three years, from 1918 to 1920, there's something called the Roaring Twenties that happened right after that, which was known as this period of just, you know, kind of just permissiveness and drinking and, you know, just everything. And people were literally trying to drink away the pain and forget of all the things that had happened in 1918. Andy Crouch, the author and, and incredible thinker, said that essentially that moment was the moment that Europe stopped believing in God. And so pandemics force us to ask some basic questions. What is possible? Imminent death trying to tell us. What's our responsibility to one another? And probably most fundamentally, where is God in all of this? Because you see, our beliefs direct our thoughts. Our thoughts dictate our actions. Our actions form our character and our character creates our destiny. And so what we believe in this moment and, and what we lean on and, and what we trust in will ultimately determine where we go from here. Now, fortunately, this is where the Gospels help us and where Jesus helps us. 
We heard a, a message last week. Pastor James talked to us about Jesus and healing a man in the pool of Bethesda. And he healed that man, and, and, and it said that the man immediately, he was paralyzed for 38 years, and he immediately leapt up, took up his mat, as Jesus instructed him to, and kept it moving. And, and, and it's quite an astonishing and just complete miracle. But, you know, not everybody was happy that he was healed. Do you, you, you know, not everybody happy when you get your come up. Like, not everybody happy is when you heal. In fact, that actually begins to activate some people who want to be haters on that. And we see the reaction in John 5, verse 18, as a prime example. In verse 18, it says, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. What is this reaction that the Jewish leadership and the authorities, the religious rulers had to Jesus after healing a man? A plot to kill him. You see, they wanted to cancel Jesus for healing people when he wasn't supposed to and doing it with an authority that they did not recognize. Now, you might go, that sounds crazy. Like, that's, that's like insane. Why would somebody do that? But, you know, we do the very same thing. Today, many of us want to cancel Jesus because he's not healing people when we want him to. And, and in either case, whether it is God is doing the thing that we celebrate or doing the thing that we don't understand, it really comes down to an issue of authority. Who gets to determine, who gets to frame what is something, if it's right or wrong or not? You know, this issue of authority has come up quite a bit recently, right? Some of us have seen the spring break pictures, right, of people, uh, college students who, who just decided to run amok and go on a beach and decide to hang out during a quarantine and say, hey, you know, YOLO, you only live once, whatever. We've seen the coronavirus parties where people literally just taking the time to, in, a, in a small, condensed area. And then, you know, we hear the stories afterwards of half the people there end up getting sick in some serious way. And, and we look at that and we roll our eyes and we go, those people, what are they doing? And then essentially what they're doing is they're not responding to it and respecting authority. They're rejecting the authority. And to an extent, if we're honest, we all struggle with how to respond and, and, and react to authority in some way or another. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't take time to, to be confused or to even be angry or sad or weep in this current moment, but it does ask us the ultimate question is who gets to write to interpret this moment? So today we will unpack the authority of the author of life and how to embrace the authority of Jesus in the midst of difficulty. And what we will see is that when we actually embrace his authority, it will actually free us up and help us to experience more joy and peace than we could when we don't do that. So from verses 16 to 18, we see that Jesus is saying, look, I am the father of one. I, I, like, he is my father. And, and I think 
ultimately, sometimes we, we have a disadvantage of being so familiar with the gospel story that we do not understand how revolutionary, how shocking it was for his people around him to hear him say, I and the Father are one. To hear him say that, like, I only do what my Father says. You see, people back then did not refer, Jews, you know, did not refer to God as a, the Father. Matter of fact, his name was so reverent, his name was so holy that they wouldn't even refer, they would just say the name. Wow. They wouldn't even specifically call on the name of God because it was that reverent. So for him to be that familiar to say, this is my father, I only do what my father is saying, they immediately understood what he was saying because there was something called the law of primogenitor. Primogenitor essentially says that the eldest son received the entire estate, all the authority, all the responsibilities, all of the power of the father. So this is what the backdrop is behind Esau and Jacob. If you remember in the story where Esau was the oldest and then he gets home, he gets hungry. And, and so Jacob says, yo, if you, I can make you something to eat, but you have to give me your birthright. And then he ends up saying, yo, what good is my birthright is I'm dead. And so he swaps his, his birthright for like a number two combo meal. And he's so upset about it and it creates a feud for the rest of their lives because that meant that he lost everything and Jacob, the younger son, got everything. So when Jesus is claiming to be, look, look at the verse, not a son of God, he's not claiming to be just like one of us. He's saying the definite article son of God, the one unique one who gets all of what the father has in, in store for him and gets to have the authority and the power and the resources to, di to distribute that as he would. And what that also means is he's saying that I alone can give peace. I alone can give you purpose in the midst of randomness. I alone can give you joy in the midst of sadness. How? Because I am one with God. Many, many academics and intellectuals, we kind of talk about different generations and you look at the boomer generation and usually the boomers and the millennials are always getting in fights and, and you know, then we talk about the Gen X so that we just kind of like chilling right now because we were latchkey kids and we grew up. But one of the things that is talked about is oftentimes it's saying, you know what, what's happened recently is younger generations have a problem with authority. They don't, they've rejected authority. And actually, kind of think that that's not really the full picture. Because in actuality, authority is not something that you can actually get rid of, right? Like, like who's in charge is not something like, there's always gonna be somebody in charge. The issue might not be that you may not respect elders as your authority, you may not expect God as your authority, but you have replaced those other aspects with yourself. You see, we have not rejected authority, we have just replaced God's authority with our own. That's just, it's been an exchange that's happened. Not a rejection, just a replacement. And in moments like this, that begins to become a point of crisis. Listen to what Lydia Dugdow says. Lydia Dugdow is the director of the Center for Clinical and Medical Ethics at Columbia University. She's a medical doctor, she's a professor in medicine, and she runs and leads the thinking on medical ethics and, and whatnot. And this is what she said. Because she's done a lot of studying on this issue of, of ethics and, and, and how we look at death and suffering and, and the fact that many of us have experienced a death of our plans. 
oh man, we had some plans for 2020, right? It was about to be lit, right? Like we was about to travel the world. We was about to start something new, start something fresh. And those things have died. And she says that a lot of us think we are our plans. We think we're our plans. So, so one of the things that we're grieving and struggling with is that not only did my plans die, but my identity that I had bound up in those plans have also died. When moments like this occurs, we're reminded we are not our plans. We're actually more than our plans. The other thing is that many of us struggle with the sense of control. I don't, I don't know when this thing is going to end. I don't know when I can get back to my regular life. It just, we have not lost control. We have lost the illusion that we were ever in control in the first place. We never were. Verse 19, this is what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. In this next passage, what we see, Jesus hits us with that truly, truly. (laughs) Now, you have to understand that from a a biblical standpoint, this is unique to only him. He's the only, like, this is his own unique style, right? Like, if you look at any of the other prophets in the past, like Moses would say, like, this is what the Lord your God says. Or you might have John the Baptist that might come out with, like, it is written. In either of those cases, they're appealing to another authority as the source of what they are saying. Jesus hits you with, truly, truly, I say to you. I don't have to appeal to anybody else. I'm telling you this myself. And it only happens when he's trying to get you to really pay attention to what he has to say on his own authority. And look at what he says. The son can do nothing on his own accord, but only see only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, that's what the son does. It's, it's, it's just that simple. You, OK, father, you do this. You, you create. Then I create. You restore, I restore. You forgive, I forgive. It's just that, like that. And the fascinating about this is this is in the context of their equality as co-aspects of the Godhead. God the Father, God the Son, and yet in the midst of that, they can actually be equals as one is submitted to the other. I think I need to say that again. You can be equals with one person submitting to the other person. Submitting to someone else does not mean that you are less than them. It just means that you're coming up under their authority. But look at how, look, and this is the reason why. This is why Jesus is cool with the fact that even as one who is equal with God, that he's comfortable with this arrangement. Verse 20, for the father loves the son and shows him all that he is, he himself is doing. It comes from the standpoint of he is firm and convinced and assured in God the Father's love for God the Son. And when you are convinced that somebody in authority loves you, you don't have a hard time with obeying their submitting to their authority. When I, when I recognize that that's the issue is that ultimately, like, I don't, even if I don't understand, 
I trust, I, I believe that this person loves me. And so as a result of that, I can walk into the space based on that. But look at this. He's not being coerced to do what the father is doing. He desires to because he recognizes that it comes from a sense of love. And, and, and you know, there's only one reaction. There's only one action point to what I do if I respond to authority. Now, I'm about to use uh, a bad word. Um, it's about to be a little bit profane up in here, but there's not really a whole lot of people in the room, so whatever. So I'm, it's just between me and you. But it's a cuss word in our culture. The, the only reaction to authority is submission. I know, I know, I know. I got to wash my mouth out. Submission. Yeah. <laughs> They're telling me I need to wash my mouth, but <laughs> the reality is Submission. Now, what is submission? Well, this is one thing we know about submission. Submission doesn't happen until what we're told to do conflicts with what we want to do. We, it, it, in other words, it's not submission if you are in a relationship of authority, but like you happen to agree all the time with the person that is telling you what to do, right? And so as long as those paths align, then you ain't really got to submission. You, you just got to partnership. Like you, you just got to like, whoa, we walking together. We, we're going in the same direction. It only becomes submission when the person wants to go left and you want to go right. Now I got a decision to make, but I, I, I want to go right though. I don't want to go over there. And when I decide to go over there, that's when I'm submitting. Oh, I got to go. Um, what I love about Jesus with this is he starts with himself. He starts with himself. Jesus, with all of the authority that he has within him, says, you know what? I'm going to show you what submission is and looks like. I'm going to show you what accepting the authority or yielding to a superior uh, authority or force looks like. It looks like trust. It looks like trust. Submission is a decision to trust. Well, how does Jesus show us this decision? In the Garden of Gethsemane, right before his crucifixion, he is praying, sweats of blood are coming down his face as he's praying, and he prays in Luke twenty-two forty-two, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Remove this cup. This wasn't just like a, yo, uh, you know, hopefully this can go away. He's praying. Have you ever prayed sweats of blood? Like, like literally like blood droplets coming down. He says, look, I don't want to do this. I don't want to be separated from your presence. I don't want to be like your experience, your wrath of sin. But that's not the end of the prayer. The end of the prayer is nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours. That is submission. I am coming up under the mission of God. Can we pray Lord, let this cup pass, but not my will, but yours be done. It reminds me of the great theologian and gospel legend, Mahalia Jackson. Mahalia has a song that I was like, you ever hear a song where you're like, I don't know if I'm up to those lyrics yet. Like, I don't think I can honestly express what you are saying right now. Any of you ever experienced that before? Well, she has a song called, Lord, Don't Move That Mountain. Now, you know, the, you know, like if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can move mountains, right? 
And we always talk about how God can move mountains and we want God to move mountains. Well, the lyrics to this song goes, Lord, don't move that mountain, but give me strength to climb it. Lord, don't move the stumbling block, but lead me safely around it. What she's praying is she's saying that, look, I actually have the type of faith that believes that you can strengthen me in the midst of my circumstance, in the midst of my difficulty to produce and to create something of spiritual vitality in me that if I didn't go through this circumstance, I would not have. Don't move the mountain. Just give me strength to climb it. And I got to be like, ooh, I'm not sure. That's, is that hard? Absolutely. Which leads to the second aspect of submission, which submission is wrestling with God. Submission is wrestling with God. We talked about Jacob earlier in, in the Old Testament. Jacob, it says he wrestled with God all night long. And we see once again, Jesus gives us the way. He shows us the way. And he quotes Psalm 22, verse 1 on the cross. And he says, Eli, Eli, lama sabatani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was a cry while he's on the cross of pain. It was a cry of separation. It was a cry of alienation, excuse me, of alienation. I don't know if uh, you guys have been listening to uh, or watching Project 1210 this past week on Tuesdays and Thursdays. Part of that experience is at 12:10 p.m., uh, our Pastor James gives us like a nugget of, uh, of just a devotional time for us to kind of think through and, and pray through. And this past week, there were two incredible ones. You can go to Bridge Church on the Facebook and kind of check them out. But he was talking about this aspect of lament. And lamenting is a, is a crying out, is, a, is an aspect of, of, of just expressing the sense of, of desperation, of, of sadness, of suffering before God. And he talked about how that when Jesus quotes Psalm 22, verse 1, he is lamenting. It's a song of lament. And you see a lot of these in the scripture. In fact, one third of all the Psalms deal with struggle. And so here's the thing. When I talk about submission means struggling with God, what we mean is that we don't just leave those frustrations internally or talk to somebody else about them. But it's when I talk to God and, re- and believe that he, can, he will listen and that he will actually respond to my cries. See, this is the thing. There's, that's the difference. There's a difference, a huge difference between uh, crying out to God and lamenting and complaining and mumbling. Typically, complaining is directed toward other people, whereas lamenting is directed toward God in the midst of it. And there's something significant about what lament does. Lament is the seed of creativity. (laughs) Think, when you, I gotta get this. When you think something is wrong in the world, when, when you're broken about those things, it tends to unlock something in us where we get to a level of creativity, a level of insight that we otherwise would not get to. All right, I'm gonna put it a different way. We find peace, not when we repress our pain, but when we express our pain. The peace comes when we express it, not repress it. Now, for those of us who are hip hop fans, we we should know this off 
from jump, right? Like hip hop as a genre, it was created through people who did not have the means to create music through having instruments, right? Budgets were cut in schools. People didn't have access to trumpets. They didn't have access to piano. So then they get turntables and DJs and starts making it happen. Especially in Brooklyn, we know about this. It was all a dream. Think about it. The whole context of the song is that there was a gap between what I was currently experiencing and what I really wanted to experience and what I thought the world should be. And the gap between that is a lament that causes creativity to go, how do I get there? How do I put pen to paper and express what it is that I'm doing and and what I'm going through? And this is what we do when we bring that to God he tends to take that and do something with it that we never thought possible. And this is what we see in verse 21 through 24. He says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son. Listen to that that may all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father uh, who sent him. And then he hits us with one of those truly, truly's again. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. If you were paying attention, there's one word that kept coming up. What's that one word you see in that passage? Honor. Four different times in verses 22 and 23. Honor, honor, honor. It's a Greek word that is used here, tomato, not tomato, tomato. And uh, it means to estimate and to fix value. (laughs) It defines honor. The first step of honor is establishing value and worth. So the key question is, how valuable is Jesus to you? Is he worthy of honor? Because if he's worthy of honor, that means he's worthy of being submitted to. We just experienced uh, this past week, they announced the uh, Hall of Fame class for the NBA and Kobe Bryant was part of that class. Uh, Kevin Garnett was part of that class. Tim Duncan, they're considering it and Tamika catching, shout out to Tamika's in the world. They consider it probably one of the most illustrious Hall of Fame passes ever. In fact, it was so illustrious that they actually told several of the committees to not submit any other names so that those names who were so deserving could be highlighted and honored above anybody else. There was a recognition and an estimation of their value that went above and beyond. How is that the way that we look at Jesus? Is he worthy of enough honor and esteem to even if I don't understand what he's doing, still appraise him and see him as higher than my own circumstance, my own ability to analyze what it is that's going on around me? Submission means trust. Submission means struggling with God. And it also means struggling for the right perspective for the right perspective. I, I, I saw uh, the movie Harriet came out um, a few months ago. And in the movie, I, there was a couple things in it that I didn't really understand, know about her story. But one of the things is when she originally went back, she got f- freed from slavery, she, she, she ran away, she, she made it up north to Philadelphia. And then when she comes, she decides to go back to get her husband, but there was a problem. Her, you know, she appears before her husband and she's like, yo, I'm, I'm, here, I'm here, I'm back, let's go. 
And the husband's like, I can't go because I married somebody else. You see, he thought she was dead, and this was over a year or so later. And so she was devastated. And then at the end of that night, she said, you know what? I thought that God brought me here for you, but God actually brought me here for other people. And so from that moment, so her whole trajectory of her whole of going back into slavery, rescuing hundreds of people after that all had to do with God redirecting something that was completely heart shattering and heartbreaking for a greater purpose than herself. She had a greater perspective than her own. The last thing that submission does is it's our only way to find joy. The last part of this passage, it says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in him. Watch it. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. He says, look, the day is coming and the hour is now here where those who are dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And what Jesus is evoking here, if you can imagine, is the creation story, right? Like in creation in Genesis chapter one, what's the first thing that God does? He speaks and, and life appears. Let there be and there was. And he says, just as the father did that, so does the son do it, right? The father, son does only things that he sees the father does. And now what I do is I bring the dead to life. And the way that you'll know is that you'll hear the son of God. And he'll, now here's the thing. He's not just talking about the physically dead here. Primarily, he's talking about the spiritually dead who are sleeping on who he is. And he says, look, this is how you know, because I will give life. And then in verse 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment. Somebody say authority. He's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. That word authority, esousia in the Greek, could, this is the definition. It means authority, but it also means power, power of choice, power, the liberty to do as someone pleases. The liberty to do as someone pleases. One of the reasons why we know the limitations and the shortcomings of our own ability to be the authority in our life is the fact that, think about it. Let's just go to uh, take a trip back down memory lane. Let's say you were 15 years old. Let's go back to 15. You remember 15. You knew everything. Now, imagine if you had the choice to give that 15-year-old carte blanche a pen to write the entire story of your life, but you had to live it out. Now, at the time, we knew everything and we knew how life was supposed to go. But there's so much that we have learned and experienced right now that we go, we slap the pen out of that 15 year old's hand. and go, no, 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 no. Don't do it. You don't know what you're doing. But then we go, but, but, but now, though, I got it, though. And you know what? Ten years from now, we're going to be like smacking the hand again out of us. Don't, don't pick up that pen. Because... We only see in the present, but God has a perspective that is beyond us where he looks at our present as history. And he sees what's happening. And so we have a decision to make. We can either decide to be our own authority and still be in bondage or give that authority to Jesus and be free from the idol of ourselves. You will be judged on if you honor the son or not. We can either reject him or live for his glory and serve him. 
Here's the thing. This is what people have learned from pandemics in the past. That those who only lived to survive could not live with themselves after they survived. You will never know who you are until you want something more than your own survival. You have to live for a goal and a, and a purpose that is beyond yourself in your own existence or else it doesn't even matter because you weren't made for just survival. You were made to thrive and the only way to do that is to be connected with the author of life who is the authority. But sometimes that means I have to recognize that submission means I don't know why. We have to run our race even when we don't know why the pain is experienced. I know a little bit about this. I, I, did, a, I did too many marathons. So now I tell people I ran a marathon because I just put them together, right? <laughs> and I trained for months for that marathon. And I remember when it was time to actually run a race and uh, I was running and the first eight to 10 miles, I was like doing well. The, the pump crowd got me really juiced. We, we, it was in Indianapolis and we actually ran, for, it's about a three mile track, the Indy 500. And I, I remember coming into it and you got, got the people there and I'm just moving. And by the time I left, something changed. I don't know if it was the heat of the asphalt or whatnot. It was a unusually hot day for marathons. Usually in marathons, you want it to be about 50 degrees so that you can kind of cool off. It was about 75 degrees. It, people were dropping like flies. I saw people fainting. It was just like this crazy thing. And all of a sudden, when I left that speedway, I could just feel my feet and my ankles and my knees in a way. And I'm like, I want to be done. But what I also thought about was how disappointing it would have been after all that training and travel. And I remember at about mile 11, a bunch of my friends had gotten together. I didn't know where they were going to be. And they just started cheering, go, go. They just started making noise and clapping. And I was somewhat embarrassed because they were so loud, but I was also very encouraged. And I just started to move. And I, I was propelled by the joy that they were experiencing and the joy that we would share together as I finished the race. In Hebrews 12, it says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Here's how. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Do you see what it's saying? It's saying that we have the strength and we have the oxygen, we have the air, we have the momentum, the energy to to run our race when we focus on Jesus and look at how he did it. How did he do it? It says, for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised its shame. And you know, I used to think of this and I used to think that the joy was him being on the crown, a, a joy of him no longer being separated from the father. And that's clearly a part of it. But you know what the joy really is in this passage? You, you're the joy. He had you in mind as he was continuing to endure that cross and saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And the resurrection was the seal of that hope so that now he didn't die so that he could be a good prophet, a good man to make you better by just doing moral behavior. He died to be your savior. It's all about honor. Will we honor Jesus? We owe him our lives twice because he created us and he redeemed us. But he also tells us the way up is down. The way to be honored is to humble ourselves. 
The way to be great is to serve those who are the least. When we rest in God's authority, we won't rest when others are suffering. There was probably in a city, in a particular city, my city, my hometown, Philadelphia, had probably the worst outcome of a epidemic. In 1793, there was something called the yellow fever epidemic. And 5,000 people died in a span of three months, which proportionally speaking, the, it was the largest city in the country at the time of 50,000 people. That means 10% of the population gone in three months. It is still considered a devastating one. And what happened was anybody who had means and wealth would leave the city. They would just get away. People didn't understand all of what was going on. They didn't know the science behind it. And it, except one notable exception, one of that notable exception is a, a gentleman, a businessman by the name of Stephen Gerard. Stephen Gerard decided to take care of the sick. You see, he had already experienced a hardship, a difficulty before. He uh, was French, and a lot of folks from uh, the French people who ended up living in America stopped over in Haiti first. IET, represent. And so as he was there, they had experienced the yellow fever epidemic. And, um, and so he didn't have the same type of fear. But more than anything, he was trying to care for other people. So when the, when the, when the, when the yellow fever epidemic ended, he was celebrated as a hero. And that experience never left him, the experience of seeing those people who were suffering. And so as a result of that, when this dude died, he was the wealthiest man in America. Let me, let me try to explain. The brother has so much money that when America went to war in 1812, they asked him for a loan. <laughs> That's loot. Like, like to this day, like if you adjust for like inflation and current, like he would be the fourth wealthiest American ever. And when he died, he left his entire estate to founding a, a building, a school for orphans who had been orphaned from this epidemic. And because of his finances and businesses, he started in 1848 in that school called Girard College, because in French, college just means school. It continues to this day. And I personally intersected with the school because when I was seven, my father was killed. And so I was able to qualify to be one of the students who were able to get admittance to the school. My mom applied. And at eight years old, I go into this boarding school. I know that all the education that I experienced, the, you know, because the school that I, I mean, the school I was zoned for in Philadelphia was so bad, it closed. Like, and it's still closed to this day. And so I know a lot of the experiences and the opportunities I've had came from me being able to graduate from there. And so as I thought about it, I went back to my yearbook. and I hadn't looked at it in a long time. And I go to my page. And underneath the picture of me, looking like I'm like 10 years old, because, you know, I have a part where you thank people. The number one, the first person that I thank, Stephen Gerard, for making all this possible. 200 years later, because someone stayed in the midst of a crisis and decided to see a journey and a goal and a legacy bigger than their own survival, I'm here today. This is our moment to live for an authority that is greater than our own and to leave a legacy that is beyond our own. And so the question for us is, what will you build? 
What legacy will you leave? There's something more and greater than our own survival, but it's a sense of our trust in God's authority. I don't know all of what the future holds, but I do know who holds the future. Will you trust God's authority even when you don't know what he's doing? As far as we can tell in all of the, you know, statistics and the you know, authorities are telling us that it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. And um, in the midst of that, we need to have, hold on to something about what we believe that will then adjust into how we act. My encouragement to all of us is that we trust, we rest, we find peace and even comfort and joy in the authority of Jesus. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you're with us. And because you're with us, we don't have to fear. Lord, we pray that right now that you would speak to us, that you would give us a sense of your peace, give us a sense of your love, give us a sense of your truth in the midst of hard times. God, we pray that you would help us to think about what you would have us to build in the midst of a crisis. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Let's worship. We hope today's message was encouraging for you. We'd also love to hear how God used this message to speak to you. We hear from people all across the country about what God is doing through our podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at info at bridgechurchnyc.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle for both of those social media outlets is at bridgechurchnyc. Our website is bridgechurchnyc.com. If you're in the New York City area, we have services at 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. on Sundays at 98 Fifth Avenue in Brooklyn, New York, right next to the Barclay Center. We are praying for you and we hope to see you soon.